Well, there's going to be somebody in the auditorium right now who knows what happened 52 years ago today. You would have seen it on your home page when you turned on your computer this morning or something. Somebody would have, you would have figured it out. What happened 52 years ago today? Yeah. John F. Kennedy was shot 52 years ago today. And although I was a very, very young child, I do remember it. And, uh, I, you know, I remember the events of that day. I remember the climate uh, around our house, just the kind of the attitude within our home. I remember my father standing in the middle of the living room uh, looking at our television. And televisions were still relatively new then, but I remember looking at the television with him and him and, and calming on the fact that they were holding up the gun that, with which Lee Harvey Oswald had shot Kennedy. And the fact is that the world changed that day. In fact, I would say, I, I might be wrong about this, but I think that was probably the first time when a, a dramatic, tragic kind of event like that went out through the news wires and on television, and everybody saw those events on film. Like, for example, if you would have been watching that, you would have seen Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald live on the news in the basement of the Dallas County Courthouse. I remember watching that. I was watching it with my mother. And we watched it over and over and over again. You could see Ruby, who had a fedora on, you could see his hat move into the picture, and then he shoots Lee Harvey Oswald. And so the news and the way that it was handled was different in that event than it had ever been before. And all of a sudden, the, the news was spread instantly around the world that one of the world's superpowers was in disarray. And, you know, it had only been 13 months previous to this that Kennedy had stared down the Soviet Union about the missiles in Cuba. And, and now, I, I suppose when I was five years old, I would have thought 13 months was forever. But now 13 months is like nothing. And so 13 months previous to that, the world had almost been at nuclear war, became this close, and then... Kennedy gets shot, and everybody's wondering who in the world shot him. And of course, many people said, it's the Soviets. And so there was great anxiety about what might be happening in the world all of a sudden. And I would say that that time was similar to today. Anxiety is something that I have felt over the last little while. Not because the leader of a superpower next door was being killed, but because I don't know if when I'm watching a football game this afternoon that there won't be an explosion in the stadium that will kill hundreds. That could easily happen. And so we have gone from this to his death. 
And then to something like this. This is the scene from the Boston Marathon a couple of years ago. Was it three years ago now? And we're kind of used to these things now. And it does cause me some sense of anxiety. There's a sense in which everything seems to be out of control. If nothing else, in very recent history, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, have become, if not killed, then displaced. They've become refugees and put into a position of suffering by what seems to be an endless series of chaotic, random events. You know, at least if it's war, you can kind of track it. You can get the news report every day and kind of find out what's going on. And we can, we can predict at some level what's going on with war. But this is not troop movements. These are random events. Seemingly unpredictable. And there is so much doubt about when the next one will happen, although we don't doubt that it will. And then in our world today, you, many of you, have to deal with things like the economic crises that we're currently undergoing here in Alberta. And the fact is, is that our lives are changing If nothing else, our lives will change because there are thousands of people who are pouring into our country and changing our whole social system, in a sense. Things are different. I know that because I'm an immigrant. I came here as an immigrant. I'm not opposed to immigration in Canada. I'm glad that they have it. But it does indeed change everything. And the people who are coming into our world today or into our country today can't help but have some kind of impact. They bring with them different viewpoints, different values, even the most basic ideas about the world they may well see differently than those of us from North America. So all of this is in flux. Now we might think, wow, this is really something that we have to experience all this. Can you imagine what it would be like to have been born in the last 12 years in the country of Iraq. What if you were a kid born in northern Iraq in the last 12 years? The only thing that you know is turmoil. That's all you know. Like the world, as far as you're concerned, is just a big, ugly place with lots of turmoil. And bombs are always going off. And one army or another is attacking. And in some cases they came through and if you were lucky to hide and it didn't happen to you, you didn't get your head cut off, but everybody else was getting theirs cut off. War and terror, that's all that you would know and think that's what the world is. And then even if you don't live in Syria or you don't live in Iraq or you don't live in Paris, it all becomes really personal really quickly. And the reason I know this is because I ask myself a question all the time. I find myself these days asking myself the question, what is going to happen to this little guy? I'm old enough that there's probably not going to be huge catastrophic changes, although there have been so many already. 
that will take place in the world between now and the time that I die. But what about his life? What if he lives medical technology? He could live for another hundred years. He's four. What if he just lives 90 more years? The things that could happen in his lifetime. Now, I don't know if you take any comfort in anything with all of this, but I'll tell you what I've been doing. I've been reading my Bible. And I do take from the scriptures some comfort in the things that are going on. And so this morning, I want us to read some scripture together. And we're going to read quite a bit here. And so I really want you to stay with me. I want you to get in your Bibles. Turn right now, if you would, to page 333 in the Pew Bibles. Page 333 in the Pew Bibles. This is the very end of 2 Chronicles. And then we're going to get right into the start of Ezra. You'll notice that they're on the same page. And I want to see some things here that actually speak to my anxiety. And maybe they're going to speak to yours too. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15, for those who are not using Pew Bibles. Page 333, if you are, verse 15 of chapter 36. And it starts like this. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. So God does the things that he does because he has pity on them. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. And and we need to get this, because God looks at the situation and says, there is no remedy. I would love to do something else. But there's no remedy here. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, that's important later on, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And so God sends them into exile, and he does so for 70 years. And it's interesting that he does this. One of the things that I think we need to see that gives me at least some sense of comfort and peace here is that God is not as far removed from current events as it might seem to us when the events are taking place. God has not left. But sometimes I think to us, it seems like he has. It must have seemed like it to them. I mean, he specifically sends them into exile, but I don't think they were all just thinking, oh, we've been punished. I think a lot of them must have said, where in the world is he? Is he gone? I thought we were his chosen people. And now he's deserted us. And what I think the text tells us is that he is bigger than the current events, no matter what they are. We have lived in a position here in Canada of incredibly great privilege. 
With no battles of war taking place within only a few kilometers of our homes the way it takes place in so many other places. War is something that for someone my age and younger happens in the Middle East. It happens in Europe. It happens out on the oceans somewhere. But it doesn't happen in my country. I've never experienced war. My my graduating class was the first graduating class not to have to file to get a draft card. And so I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to have somebody tell you that you have a number that could be drawn and you'll have to go off to war. I I don't know what that's like. But there are people all over our world who know what that's like. We don't know hunger. We don't know displacement. We don't know inconvenience. You know what inconvenience is for us? Inconvenience for us is when the key fob, the electronic key fob on our key ring, stops working and we have to go and use a key in the door in the middle of winter. That is inconvenience. What a pain that is for us. Which means that we are absolutely out of touch with a good percentage of the people in our world and their circumstances. We don't have a clue. Only in recent years have many of us felt at all threatened or had to think about such awful things and the fact that they're present in our world. Only recently we had to wonder about where in the world God is in all of this. Or is he there at all? But our world is indeed shrinking. Events that were once way off are coming way too close. And so we're going to bring a couple of thousands of refugees into our city, and it's going to affect us. The next time a bomb goes off, it may be in our city we are afraid of. What will we do, and what will we think when that happens? The fact is, we can take in all these refugees. It's not going to mean anything to us, really. My life will not be impacted one iota, probably, by the fact that that we take in new refugees into Canada. Now, it will be impacted when the 2,000, or whatever we take, becomes, over the next 100 years, many more thousands. And that's going to happen. Like, you might think to yourself, somehow we'll avoid that. No, we won't avoid that. That's going to happen. Where in the midst of God is all of that, if someplace? And I think he is. The fact is, when it comes to refugees and things like that, I think we need to be filled with love and grace and embrace people. And it does scare me to do so. You know, anytime you serve somebody, your life is going to be impacted. You can't help it. If you decide to stop and help somebody with gasoline because they're out of gas... Somehow your life is going to be impacted. You're going to be later to your appointment than you otherwise would have been. So these things are going to impact us. They're going to inconvenience in some way. But that's what service is all about. That's what love in the name of Jesus is all about. And so we need to serve. We need to love. We need to bless. Well, I think the book of Ezra also speaks to some of these issues. I want you to look down. If you're in a pew Bible, you'll see that the end of Chronicles and the start of Ezra are right connected. 
And even if you just turn the few pages in your Bible, if you're going in your own Bible, you'll see that there's not much distance between them. And in fact, the very first part of Ezra looks an awful lot like the very end of Second Chronicles. They're almost identical. And the book of Ezra told the Jews that indeed the question we keep asking, where is God, is answered because he is in fact there and he did not leave us alone. God is still in control. And so you read those first few verses about the Jews going off into Babylon and all that's happening with them. The fact is that is all controlled and governed by God. He sees the events that are taking place and he orchestrates them. And they need to have confidence in him and we need to have confidence in him. God is not gone. Even though I know sometimes it seems like he must be. Well, there's at least a second thing. God always preserves at least a remnant that will continue. He creates hope for the future with a new beginning built on what he has preserved. You know, sometimes I've wondered if we're not seeing the beginning of the end of civilization, maybe the end of the world. Have you ever wondered that? Do you ever think, is this the end? Things are getting pretty bad. I don't know if it's 100 years away, 200 years from now, or 100 days from now, or 200 days from now. But at the very least, those of us who live in North America and who see these events taking place and are Christians have to at least wrestle with the question. Now, normally, we just live in these sheltered, insulated lives of ours, relatively isolated from everything. And we may think that this could be the end of the good that God has given us. Maybe we won't stay isolated any longer. Maybe this is, our insulation is gone. And we're going to find ourselves experiencing what everybody else in our world experiences. It's possible. I don't think that the people in France in, say, 1940 or 39 or whatever it was that they were attacked by Nazi Germany, I don't think that the people of France were expecting that their lives are going to be completely turned upside down. They may have been thinking this won't happen. Or at least they didn't think that in 1914. But it completely changed for them and it changed forever. And the response that they've given to what went on in Paris in the last couple of weeks is an outgrowth of all those things that they experienced. Who's to say that the experience couldn't be ours? We think, because we've never experienced it, that it just can't happen here. But of course it could happen here. Now what's comforting to me in all of that is that God, nonetheless, is still blessing and in fact is always going to leave a remnant. I want you to look at Ezra chapter 1. Look at verse 2. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Now, this is astonishing. Cyrus, the king of Persia, is going to help rebuild the Jewish temple. 
Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be, these are the remnant, are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now the king of Cyrus writes that. Then the text goes on, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord. This is amazing. Remember back at the end of Second Chronicles, all those things from the temple were taken out? He captured them and carried off to Babylon. Now Cyrus is giving them back. He brings out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. March, uh, matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. And you think, big deal, Kelly. Why are you going through this chronicle of these things? This is pretty boring stuff. But it's because these things, are they've been preserved. They're going back into Israel. God is going to rebuild. Look at the start of chapter 2. Now these are the people of the province who came up from out of the captivity, the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town in company with Zerubbabel, etc. The remnant. The prophets had said there would be a remnant. And now there is. Because God keeps his promises and he is still with his people. And so when it looks to us like everything is falling down around us, everything is going to pot, literally to pot. When the whole thing is coming apart, God is still faithful. And so this remnant thing is a big deal. Because turmoil and hard times and challenges do not mean for us annihilation. Instead, God keeps for himself a people. He brings things back to life. He makes things new. They're going to rekindle their temple worship. And they're counting on God to bring back this remnant. And he does. And Ezra is saying to me here, God is with his people and he will preserve us because he wants to do a new thing using whatever survives the turmoil. And we will survive. He's going to do something wonderful here out of this turmoil. And so it looks to us for the moment like, oh, what are we going to do? And, and let me tell you, folks, I think things will get worse. Like, I don't want to scare anybody. But do we really think that in the next 20 years, there's not going to be some major 
jihadist attack within our borders. Is there anybody here who thinks that's not going to happen? Like, do we not know that this is going to happen? Do we not understand that there are going to be hundreds or thousands of people, maybe in our own city, that this is going to take place among us? This is going to happen. But God wants us to trust him and to be faithful to him because he still wants to do a new thing. He still hopes for and creates a new future that is being built because he's the God who's going to sustain a remnant. Here's another thing. No matter the events taking place, he still hopes and expects to be at the center of our lives and a priority for his people. I want you to look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 in the book of Ezra says, in verse 1, when the seventh month and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Now at this point, there is no wall around Jerusalem. That comes in Nehemiah. At this point, there is no temple. It's going to be built shortcoming. But what do the people do when they get back to the city of Jerusalem? After all that has happened, the people build an altar and begin to make sacrifices to God. And that is exactly what he wants them to do. Because no matter what's going on, he wants us to continue to honor and worship him. You know, we saw this with Daniel just a couple of weeks ago. He gets thrown into the lion's den. But with him, it's perfectly okay. Because he's called to be faithful no matter what. And we're called to be faithful no matter what. The way that these people are called to be faithful no matter what. And so whatever is going on around me, the walls are falling down, the whole world is... In disarray, he expects us, even at that point, to honor him and worship him. And it'll be tempting in a world like ours to give up on all of this. To say, man, I could spend my time elsewhere than trying to serve a God who clearly is in control of anything. God wants us to do something else. He wants us to not get sidetracked by the circumstances around us. This is, in fact, the one place we need to go when things get bad. Do you know what happens when things really get bad? People start going back to church. We preachers love it when there's a tragedy. (laughs) Not really, of course. But people get religious when the world starts to fall apart. And the secular people like to say, well, it's just a crutch. And I would say, of course it is. 
Of course it's a crutch. Where are we going to go? Do we think that we're somehow going to fix this ourselves? Like, don't the last three or four millennia of human efforts to try and improve our world tell us that we can't do this ourselves, that it's not working for us? It seems to me that that's the case. And so where would we go? What are we going to do? And I would say that rather than leave him, cling to him, worship him, learn more about him, be in relationship with him, teach your children about him. For those who are tempted to waver at a time like this, thinking, where in the world is he? Let me just ask you, where are you going to go? Where else will you go to find the words of eternal life? And I would say there just isn't any place. And that we need to cling to him. I think that's what God wants. Finally, more than just worship, God desires our lives to be lived out with his will as our priority. And this is exactly, again, what he asked the people to do in the days of Ezra. I want you to look at chapter 9. They come back to the city of Jerusalem. They begin to worship again. They rebuild the temple. And by the way, there was all kinds of opposition where they're supposed to, like others are trying to get them not to build the temple, but they decide they're going to do it no matter what. So they, they do build the temple. And it looks like things are really on track and they're going okay. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, Ezra says, and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And look what Ezra does. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and my cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of, his unfaith- because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then it goes on and talks about how the people confessed and repented. You know, we, we sometimes wonder if it's appropriate for the church to meddle in people's lives. Like, should the church get into people's lives like their marriages? Or we say, the church should stay out of the bedroom. God is in this case right in the middle of people's marriages, telling them who they can marry and who they can't marry. Like, you just wonder, can he be any more intimately involved with the people than telling them who they can marry and who they can't marry? but it's because he is so concerned about the daily decisions that people make and he wants us to make great ones. And so we live in very turbulent times. 
And if you're like me, it's a little, more than just a little bit disconcerting. What will the news hold for tomorrow? What will happen this afternoon? Will I turn on my television today to watch a football game and find that there's an explosion instead? It's possible. What are we going to think when the terrorist attack occurs and we find out that the people who did it are living down the street? Holding God at arm's length and removing yourself from him is certainly not the answer. But it's so easy to get distracted. So easy for all of these things that are on our mind to prevent us from going to him. So yesterday on Facebook, some of you might know what that is. Some of you older ones are glad you don't. Yesterday on Facebook, I put a status. And on the status, one of the things I said was, we need to look at Jesus. We need to read the Gospels. We need to hear his teaching. We need to see what he does. And I think that's right. I don't know where else to go. And so we need to keep turning to him. We need to go back there. We need to allow the Gospels to teach us about who Jesus is and what it is that he wants for our world. And so here's the admonition for the day. I really encourage you to read through one of the Gospels, at least one of the Gospels this week. Do it this afternoon. Do it tomorrow. Read it in bits and pieces or sit down and read the whole thing through. But I really encourage you to read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Because it's my sense that in reading there and getting from Jesus the teaching and his example of how to live, my sense is that's the healthiest way that we have of responding to our world and the things that are going on around us. And if we don't respond that way, I just don't know how to respond. And so return to the Gospels this week. I think that that's the way home to God. Let's pray. Lord, we have so many things that are on our minds these days. Oh, I, know, I know I do. I, I constantly think about these things that are happening, and it's inescapable, Lord. I, I turn on my computer or the television or listen to the car radio or whatever it is, and it's all the same stuff. But, Lord, we do know that you're in control, And we do know that you're watching out for your people, that you've even created this notion of remnant where we recognize that we are yours, that you love us. We recognize, God, that when we continue to worship you and center our faith on you, that you're going to keep working in our lives and do good things. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to repent of our sins, to turn back to you in whatever way we need to, that we can focus on you, be what you want us to be, And Lord, we believe that through all of this, that you're going to continue working. And so while I see lots of turmoil around me, I put myself firmly in your hands. And and just pray, God, that, that others too, that all of us, will turn back to you, look to you. And especially in this case, because we're Christians to Jesus, and see you working in his message and his life. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen.